If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Fiona McAvoy. She is a tech ethics writer and researcher. She holds um, a BA degree at the University of Birmingham in literature, English literature. She has a BA in classical studies from the University of Durham. And she's got a master's in philosophy, courtesy of San Francisco State University. And yet she's uh, applying all of that to artificial intelligence. Welcome to the show, Fiona. Hi, it's great to be there. Sorry, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with what is a tech ethics writer? Um, I mean, I know what each of those words mean, but what, <laughs> what, what it, to, taken together, what, what are they? What are the issues? Uh, so what I do, uh, and I want to be clear, I'm not kind of representing the world of philosophy. Um, what I try to do is take some of the things that I learned during my philosophy master's degree, so in particular some of the ethical theory, and really play with that and apply it to some of the technologies that we see coming out of Silicon Valley and other places like it. So I really use uh, ethics, so um, ideas of what, what is right and what is wrong and what are consequences and, and what kind of dignity we can be afforded as human beings. I, I think about those things and then, then kind of apply those conceptually to, um, I don't know, emotion AI or facial recognition or some of the technologies that are, are being hotly debated at the moment. So I guess there's a few different lenses to look at ethics and AI. There's how do we use it ethically, uh, but is there also an element of how do we treat it ethically? Or are we way too, pro- too soon to kind of have that conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are already having that conversation. And I'll be honest, it's not my area of expertise, but I, I know that people have already written on robot rights and thought about um, you know, AI and personhood. I think that's something that's being debated at the moment. Um, for my own area of research and interest, I'm really mostly, I mean, I actually write across the board. I don't limit myself because mm. uh, my blog is kind of my own musings. Uh, I'm not providing a public service. I am, you know, writing things that I'm thinking at the moment. But one of the things I, I mainly look at is kind of issues of surveillance and kind of consequent. Uh, influence uh, and how that might affect user autonomy and agency and basically shape um, the way that we are in the world Uh, and I I believe if our choices are shaped um, they are constitutive of who we are as people so um, if if you believe that I don't know the haircut you have or the school that you choose to go to or the shoes that you wear or you know the job that you have is in any way constitutive of who you are as a person, um, it seems like there are now more and more external forces wanting to shape those choices. And as a consequence, they're having an impact on who you are. Uh, And that concerns me a little bit. So expand on that a little bit. Give me a a real example of the kind of thing that that keeps you up at night. Um, so, uh, I mean, we've all, we've all heard particularly recently about, you know, the great hack. I don't know if anyone's seen that on Netflix. 
Uh, and it talks about this um, kind of behavioral persuasion in the context of um, political systems and, and voting in various places. Um, what I actually think about is, as I look at that more from a commercial perspective, so um, thinking about targeted advertising and, and that kind of thing, um, and, and I'm concerned that our, our kind of, I call it our horizon of choice, right? So we are, we are, think about the Truman Show, right? So um, that, that old film with, with Jim Carrey in it, he has a, a horizon of choice, which might be broad, but is necessarily constrained by the makers of the show that he is unwittingly appearing in and so I'm concerned that as we um, we are being observed uh, and surveilled and our behavior is consistently being predicted that we become all the more predictable and as such our kind of horizon of choice narrows um, it's in the interests of big companies who want to sell us things be it products or services um, for us to remain predictable but I actually think um, you know that's a terrible shame and as, as, as people, we should want to evolve uh, as characters, as humans in the world. And I'm concerned that, that we're being prohibited in that or obstructed in that, um, you know, knowingly in many cases. Um, at the moment, I, I don't sort of wake up in a cold sweat over that. But one of the papers I've just written is about how this works as we go into increasingly immersive environments. So um, let me give you an example. And this is actually a deliberately old example. Um, back in 2009, uh, at Stanford University, there was an experiment. It was a psychological experiment. And they took a bunch of elementary school children, so kind of young kids, and they put the VR, virtual reality headsets on them. And they played them, uh, I guess, a, a VR construction of, of themselves as an avatar, so them as themselves as like a little little person, kind of representative, swimming with orca whales. And you know, they enjoyed it, and they went away. And, and a couple of weeks later, they came back, and uh, an astonishingly high percentage of those elementary school children reported that as a true lived experience. They thought they had swum with orca whales. Uh, and the reason I use that example is because I believe it speaks to the potency of some of these technologies. Uh, and that's a 2009 technology. Now we know that virtual reality environments can uh, dynamically adapt to our kinetic movements, to our eye movements, um, and then compound that, compound that with the data that they already hold on us about you know, who we are and what we prefer and what our search terms have been recently. Um, it feels as though if we are going to be moving into increasingly immersive environments, and um, we've got good reason to believe that we are. I know that Wired magazine used their front page in February to declare that augmented reality is the big new platform. That's how we're going to be browsing in the near, uh, the medium to the medium term future. Um, so what concerns me is if we're going into those kind of potent, um, almost subliminal environments, and then we have this issue with the fact that we're being consistently surveilled and increasingly surveilled, then um, that feels like it could be um, it could be an enormous influence, and, and I would say an uh, unethical influence on the way that we behave in our, in our human autonomy, which I think is an important thing. But just to play devil's advocate for a moment, um, you, you talk about our horizon of choice contracting, but it sure feels exactly the opposite of that to me. So I'm 50 years old and I remember when I was in high school, like I could choose to get my news from any of three channels <laughs> willing to watch them at five. 
If I heard a statement and wanted to fact check it, I could do it, but I had to go to the library and spend an afternoon pulling magazines and all of that. It, 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 the, the promise of the internet was that it would open up all of this information to us, and mm -hmm. it largely has. And and so we were faced with this problem in a, in a, in a universe with infinite kinds of information, with an infinitely large horizon, to use your language. Mm -hmm. How do I navigate that? And, uh, and and maybe we are imperfect at it at the moment, but how can how can somebody say somehow our horizon has shrunk because uh, I clicked on such and such ad compared to that world? Yeah, I think it's, it's funny because it sounds like a contradiction. And um, uh, I think when you were saying about the three the three different news outlets, that reminds me, you can probably tell from my accent, I grew up in the UK and I remember us having sort of four different TV channels. Um, the interesting thing was that each of those were equally weighted in terms of which one uh, I, I might choose. And obviously then the dependent, it becomes dependent on what each one is showing. Um, what I'm concerned about is that although we have um, this seemingly infinitely broad selection that's available to us via the internet, that some of the, the options available to us are, are much more heavily weighted than others and um, they're being promoted to us um, much more vociferously than others and as a consequence our choice isn't necessarily quite as broad as it may seem. It isn't that we can't choose outside of what Google chooses for us or what Facebook chooses for us, it's that I, I'm worried that in the future it might become uh, increasingly a burden for us to seek extraneous information. So for example, um, if I Google something uh, and you Google something, if, if we both Google shoes, um, my results will look different to your results on the, on the first page of the search terms. Um, it will it'll be based on lots of different things that they know about me and the same with you. Um, there might be something wonderful that I would enjoy on page four, but the fact is I know really get that far. Now at the moment it isn't that much of a burden right for me to click through to page two, page three, page four. But perhaps in an environment where we are engaging a lot more with for instance virtual assistants and at the moment you know people have them in their houses, in their cars, some people have them at work. Um, in, that, in that environment the default is set. So whatever uh, my search, my search is um, well, the results of my search are to a certain extent determined, or the first results are very much determined by whoever sets, uh, whoever sets the kind of default mode on that. And then again, as I say, these, these uh, augmented or mixed or virtual reality environments, they have much more control over literally my horizon of choice, so my eye line. Um, and so again, I, I believe that the burden uh, becomes um, it, well, intensified if I want to actually seek extra information or I want to go and look at a, a lesser known um, shoe shop or shoemaker um, and I, I'm worried that that burden will just prevent us I mean we're busy people and lots of these things are based on convenience and I'm concerned that that extra burden will prevent us from really looking outside of our own little bubbles of information that's been fed back to us it's sort of like a feedback loop and we've heard this you know this idea before uh, and I think it might become tighter if we're not careful and if we are talking about this uh, which I think more and more we are but I'm still not fully following because if you and I search for shoes and um, maybe the, the simplest thing I get men's shoes and you get women's shoes, um, that's good, isn't it? Because this idea that, well, maybe there's something on page four, 
but maybe there's something on page 4 million. I mean, maybe there's something on page 4 billion too. So why not just mix it all up and randomly throw some pages and hope some of them are about shoes. It's like, if, if I could only watch television and see ads that uh, were things I might potentially be interested in, isn't that actually better? And, and to say that, well, people won't do it, I mean, isn't that a little like, I, I get up and I read five or six different news sites and they're not all in the US and they uh, vary widely in their outlook and their perspective. So I had made that choice that I can't want, want this broad spectrum, but other people may not. Uh, other people may be like, I just want the shoe result that is most likely the one I'm looking for. Yeah, and I think that's fine to hold that opinion. My concern is that um, obviously not everybody is like you, Byron. Not everyone gets up in the morning and, and reads, you know, kind of range of different news outlets. Um, my, my concern is that actually some of the things that shape our characters, that um, make our lives more enjoyable, are things that we have discovered um, at random. There are things that have been thrown into our paths, whether it's via the television or via someone that we've met or walking into a random store or whatever it may be. We can all trace some of our um, most beloved pastimes to something that we, we stumbled across in a, in, a rather random, uh, in a rather random way. And the less random our horizon of choice becomes, the less likely those things are to happen to us. And so I, I wonder and I worry, and I'm not saying, uh, I'm not kind of trying to raise the alarm here, this is a conversation I think, but I worry that we become more predictable, our, our interests become narrower. Uh, and it's obviously in the interests of those who want to sell us things, products and services, whatever that may be, that we become more predictable. Um, but actually, many of the joys in life come from discovery. Uh, and I, I'm not sure the way that things are set up at the moment uh, give much range for discovery, unless we are the type of person like yourself, who is uh, kind of determined to look outside of our own particular little infosphere, to use uh, Luciano Floridi's uh, term. But I guess the question is, do you force serendipity onto people who would rather not have it? Um, do you force serendipity onto people that would rather not have it? No, I don't, I don't agree with forcing anyone, anything onto anyone. I, I just think there needs to be perhaps more of awareness about how sculpted and shaped our, our environments are. Like, and conversations, so that I go to a lot of tech conferences, and um, there's this conversation that I sort of sat in on a few times, and they talk about, and it reminds me, because I used to work actually in the banking industry and they're very similar conversations um, about how we get consumer trust, right? How we, how we encourage consumers to trust us and the decisions that we're kind of making on their behalf or the decisions that we're guiding. And, um, and I, I always think, well, is, isn't that, like, like we want to get to a position of trust. I, I completely agree with that. But I feel at first we need to get to a position where we're encouraging people to scrutinize the technologies that they're letting into their lives. And I'm talking about from, you know, from those elementary school children upwards to actually not trust everything that comes onto their browser or every piece of hardware that's put into their hands is a great new idea to think about, OK, well, what information is it taking? How might it use that? How 
my eye expand my horizons within the parameters of this particular technology um, we need to get to a point of scrutiny before we get to a point of trust which is obviously the ultimate objective and and so it's less that I I'm kind of condoning some idea of Google or Facebook sort of randomly throwing you know kind of I don't know, random ideas of pastimes, people encouraged to go to Vegas who would never have done such things or horse ride or whatever. I'm, I'm not suggesting that. I, I'm suggesting perhaps that we, we are, um, <coughs> double down, we double down on the scrutiny aspect of it and just make sure that um, perhaps that, that people are encouraged to look outside or, you know, challenge themselves to look outside of this particular little bubble. So on, on to your second example, which was about the, the kids with the VR headset. Mm. That one also, so when movies came out, I mean, you, I'm sure you've heard that, uh, you know, when the, there was one with the railroad um, robbery, a train robbery, and that people would shoot the screen in some showings because it looked real. And, and mm. when the train was barreling down on them, they screamed and moved away. Likewise, um, The Honeymooners, a television show in the 50s in the US, I remember reading where the, the wife um, would, because she lived in this little apartment that didn't, on the show, that didn't have curtains. And there was sometimes she mentioned wanting curtains that all these people would send her curtains because they thought that's where she lived. <laughs> uh, and, and, and yet we don't watch movies and think that's real anymore. And we don't watch TV and think it's real and so why is there any reason not to think that that example you gave of a brand new technology shown to kids that that's somehow something any different at all than just you know it's hey it's something new we don't quite know how to deal with it but once once we deal with it all day every day it'll it'll be old hat um so I used that example in the context of, well, I used it as a sort of stepping stone to getting to this idea of surveillance and influence in more immersive environments. And uh, I agree with you that we may well become more kind of acclimatized to the idea of VR and adjust our senses accordingly. Um, one thing that, um, that will change or has changed already um, is the fact that these technologies can dynamically adjust in the way that your your movies um, your movies didn't, and also your movies um, weren't functioning in that way deliberately, right? So the fact is that now, if I put on a VR set, depending on what VR set it is, it may well be, and often you know you kind of wear the gloves and stuff as well. Let's not forget, it may well be that it is tracking my. Um, my eyesight, it could be tracking, and I know some technologies do do this, I think it's the, the blood movement underneath my skin, uh, certainly my kinetic movements if I'm wearing gloves, and dynamically, adju dynamically adjusting to accommodate for this. Part of that a dynamic adjustment, I believe, if we are using such platforms in a commercial sense, will be um, geared towards encouraging me to buy things or to like things, or to, to spend money in some way, shape or form, or invest my time in some way, shape or form. And that really is the difference, is that it's those, it's hijacking those kind of cognitive flaws that I have. Um, another example, which is actually kind of an old example, um, uh, but I like these because actually they speak to a time when this technology was more primitive and we know that it's, you know, it's so much more, uh, it's so much more sophisticated now. Um, it was based on a marketing study and again in a virtual reality environment um, people were shown 
avatars of, of I think they were avatars that kind of looked like them, kind of looked like the, the user. And they would be wearing like a sweater, like say like a red sweater. And then afterwards they would be surveyed kind of randomly. Um, and uh, they would say, do you, do you like this red sweater? And, and across the board, uh, the users would say, yeah, I really like that red sweater. And um, they did not make the connection to the fact that they'd seen an avatar like themselves wearing it, right? So there was a kind of subliminality to the fact that they came away with a preference for this particular sweater. Um, and so I am concerned. I mean, and that's a psychological trick. And I think we, I think most of us are in agreement that, that that feels unethical to kind of subconsciously persuade someone. And so what I'm concerned about and what I wrote my last paper is about that is that, I mean, these technologies are great. And, and I certainly don't want to come across as a Luddite here. Well, I'm, I'm most definitely not. I love technology. Um, but what I'm concerned about is before we kind of run run off in this direction and we start using these technologies to to uh, sell commercial products let's think about the ways in which uh you know what, what are the what are the parameters of ethical permissibility here where do we draw the line when does something kind of tip over from a from a nudge and we you know we kind of know that term from behavioral economics from a nudge into a shove um, when does it become something that that feels coercive or manipulative? And, and that's what I'm concerned about is the use of these technologies, the kind of weaponization of them against people um, who are you know, trying to enjoy the experience in shop. There's nothing wrong with that per se. It's just the idea that we can use these these kind of psychological hacks. So to, to change topics a bit, let's talk a bit about privacy. Um, you know, we all used to have a basic assurance of privacy based on the fact you can't follow everybody, right? You can't listen to every phone conversation um, and you can't, but now you can, right? If voice recognition can, can um, decipher every phone call and, and uh, every email can be read and, and even uh, cameras can read lips as well as humans almost. And so even all these hundreds of millions of cameras that are out, now all of a sudden you actually could follow everybody and listen to every conversation. And, and the same tools we use to do great things with the technology, like look for symptoms, you know, cure cancer or something, also can be used to mine that same data. What are your thoughts about, I assume, I assume not to put words in your mouth, you, you, would, you would want to avoid a surveillance state like that where people's behavior is shaped, but it's happening in some parts of the world. Yeah. What, how do you suppose we keep it from happening more or how do we how do we stop that like practically speaking yeah I, I think that's a really good question and you assume correctly I am I'm not in favor of this kind of creep of surveillance I'm, I'm concerned that it's already upon us you know um, and how how do we stop it on a practical level um see this is a really difficult thing and, and I'm kind of encouraged to see that in various places including San Francisco where I'm based at and uh, facial recognition. I think we need to talk a little bit more about maybe the purpose. You know, I, I went to another conference and I was in a breakout group and it was specifically on facial recognition. And we had a, a leader who was from a, a venerable institution nearby. And the first thing we had to do was um, like one by one go through what are the benefits of, of facial recognition. And uh, this is a 45 minute session. And I think we probably spent about 10 minutes going, you know, well, if people are missing and, you know, border control and things like that. And then the next, you know, the next 30 minutes or 35 minutes was spent 
going through the negatives and the ways that it could be weaponized against the populace. And I think at the end, we all kind of sat back and said, wow, you know, I don't know whether we've thought enough about, you know, d does it work as a deterrent? Uh, it, you know, is it something that we need? And, and like, what's the benefit of this stuff? And I think maybe, and, and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe there are, there are benefits that I've never thought about. But at the moment, I feel as though we're acting before asking questions. So, um, I don't know, I don't, I'm, maybe this didn't make it to the US media, but there was a case, and I'm going to muddle this a little bit because I read it very quickly a little while ago, but there was a case in the UK, um, they're doing a pilot uh, for facial recognition technology, and it was a police van that went around with a kind of camera, you know, and, and literally filming people in the streets. And there was a guy that got pretty irate by this, and there was a bit of a, not a tussle, but certainly a, a lively argument between this guy and the police, because he wanted to pull his scarf up over his face, and they wanted him to show his face to the camera. And that, that, I mean, that kind of terrifies me, the fact that without really having much of a public conversation, we are implementing, we're going out and we're taking, you know, in terms of facial recognition, they're taking information about us that's almost akin to our DNA without real true public consultation. And that's what concerns me. I'm, I'm open to anything that we can prove is better. And, you know, I'd be a fool if I wasn't. But can we, can we at first prove that it's something that is necessary before we kind of march ahead? That would be my perspective. Well, I'm a little less worried about open societies because mm -hmm. people can, you know, if, if, if enough people are feel similarly, then you can legislate against it. And, you know, there's like a path uh, to choose our, our way forward. But what about in parts of the world where they aren't open societies? Do you think, because then you have to say, well, how is that a technology that won't be used by the majority to entrench their own rule at the expense of the minority? Is there any way out of that? And do you believe fundamentally, like historically speaking, open societies will just, will just win compared to ones that use these technologies to, um, to, to stifle debate and uh, innovation and, uh, well, and, uh, you know, to stifle criticism? So how do you mean win? What do you mean? So sorry, I thought you said that how, how open societies will ultimately, did you oh, say win? win? Right. So in other words, what at the end of when, when history, in a hundred years hence or 200, mm -hmm. or 500, when you have, you have some uh, societies that say, hey, let's talk about these technologies. Let's collectively decide what we're going to do. We're going to not get it right. And, you know, we're going to make mistakes and we'll pull the reins back and maybe we'll let them too mm -hmm. loose. Then we'll pull them back and, you know, we'll feel our way forward. And then you have societies that, that don't ever have that conversation. Those technologies are used mm -hmm. by those in power. So a hundred years hence, which societies have been more successful? Which societies have been more successful thus far? So is the argument that no, because no, in, in, the the, in, in the future, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm concerned and it's not that I, it's not that I think that the U S is going to turn into some uh, deeply pernicious surveillance state in the way that, other jurisdictions we might be able to point to probably already are or will be. Um, my concern is that um, it's difficult to row back. And I think that, um, I mean, I mean, I come from Europe and, you know, if you, if you go to London, CCTV cameras are everywhere. Once things are implemented, it's difficult to row back. So I, I think necessarily we will end up 
across the board in with with much greater surveillance and surveillance that uh, can tell much more about us not just who we are and where we are but also so you know with the uh, with the emphasis on emotion AI at the moment you know, how we're feeling potentially as well do I think that this kind of freer uh, expression of it will win out I mean I, I sincerely hope so but I, I'm just worried that we're marching towards a kind of benchmark norm that is um, that is more intrusive than uh, we've ever known before and actually as you say for that for the very reason that we can surveil everyone at once it's almost as though the intention was always that but the mechanism wasn't and so now the mechanism is there I think yeah I think I actually believe that in the future we will we will be surveilled to a much greater extent and um and I worry about you know the kind of chilling effect of that like how will we adjust our behavior accordingly you know uh, and I'm not entirely sure and if I was um uh, I would I would <laughs> probably be launching a campaign but I'm not entirely sure about how to kind of reverse the thought on that so these technologies that, that follow people, that recognize their faces, that read their lips and all of that, are not only exist, but are being exported to, to totalitarian regimes. Yeah. To, um, I mean, ones that are unequivocally undebatable totalitarian regimes mm -hmm. with the simple purpose of stifling criticism and securing power. What's, I guess that's my question. What is their way out of that? Because when the internet and all this technology came out, you could see, hey, you can send encrypted emails and everybody can communicate with everybody and things like Twitter allow you to post things and, and they can, you know, you could see all the ways that it, that it empowered uh, individuals. Mm -hmm. But this one thing comes along, which looks almost intractable. It looks almost yeah. like, how can anybody ever get around that? If, I mean, it really feels 1984-ish. And is there a path out of that for, for people in those, in those areas? Wow, I mean, that is a tough question. <laughs> uh, is there a way of people in totalitarian regimes from kind of slipping from uh, the grasp of uh, those totalitarian regimes with uh, intractable surveillance technology? Um, whew, I mean, I, I, it's a million dollar question. I mean, I... I I would have to sit and think about what the way, what, like how that might take place, like how, how we could start to row back, you know, and I think ultimately it comes down to politics and yet that in and of itself is being controlled. So the, the, I mean, the very short answer is I, I don't know. And that's why I'm concerned about it across the board is that once we've introduced this stuff uh, and we haven't stopped to think about, okay, well, what might be the unintended consequences of these technologies? Who might take them on? Who might weaponize them against their populations? If we don't have those conversations at the design phase, then we end up in the situation that we're in now, which is, you know, scratching our heads, trying to think of ways in which um, populations could be liberated when it, it now seems as though they, there is a tighter grip around them. Well, um, we're running out, we're almost out of time. I'll just close with one uh, question. Um, I'm what's known as a techno-optimist. I believe in technology and it's the power to make people's lives better. And I think over, the long span of history it does that and it's great so when it comes down to it are you an optimist about you know because this has been a pretty dark episode <laughs> this is an ai uh in the end are you optimistic that that humanity's future that it's all going to work out in the end um the short answer is yes 
I am an optimist. Um, there are incredible technologies out there, which because of my kind of slant on the topic, I, I don't speak about enough and I have made attempts to recently to really um, uh, evangelize for some of the ways in which technologies will improve the lot of, you know, millions, if not billions of human beings. I'm incredibly optimistic about um, technologies impact in terms of climate change, uh, in terms of sustainability goals, in terms of uh, a lot of disabled people and people with impairments. Um, I'm incredibly optimistic about you know, vast swathes of it. I, I would actually argue the majority of it. My, my real cause is to just encourage uh, anyone developing a technology and anyone uh, using a technology to, to sit and think about unintended consequences, to anticipate how um, it might be used for wrong and just you know simply so we don't end up in another kind of facebook scenario where it's easy to say well we never thought that it could be used this way and the fact is that might be because there isn't enough thought going on at that kind of design phase um so yeah i mean I i'm an optimist i'm an optimist all around actually i think the fact that we're having this conversation right now and so are lots of other people suggest that we are at least engaging with this conversation and we are thinking about um, the harms that could ensue from the technologies that we're we're seeing launched into the into the world so yeah the short answer is i am optimistic uh, i'm just uh, i just think it's incredibly important that we we have these conversations too all right, Fiona. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We didn't get to explainability. We didn't get to all these other issues that were on my list to talk to you about. So I'd love to have you come back whenever you have some spare time. And I would love to. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, we encourage you to check out gigaom.com where you can subscribe to the full body of knowledge and research put out by our team of analysts. For all of your future forward advice on IT and the tech industry, please visit gigaohm.com.